At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us. And if you're listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And we're here to spin you a tale. Or several tales. T-A-I-L. Oh, thank God. I was hoping this one had a tale. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my week, so I genuinely do not No, this do one does know. not have a tale. Oh, dang it. I mean, it could have a tale, I guess. It'd be, um, it would be bizarre if this had a tale. Doesn't have a tailor, doesn't it? I'm just going to go ahead and get into it. I'm the keeper of this week's cryptid. If you've read the title, you already know what that is. Is it the inspiration for the Michael Jackson song, Man in the Mirror? Maybe, probably not. What? Um, but this week, I like to talk to you about doppelgangers. Oh, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I don't have a an algorithm like you do in terms of cryptid selection. <laughs> I just either go to like a Wikipedia page of cryptids and pick one that sounds interesting, or like I did this week... I think about something that has tormented me since I was very young, and I research it. That's fair. So doppelgangers were a subject and are a subject that I admittedly know not that much about. But in layman's terms, like the way that I think most of us understand them is it is another person out there who looks exactly like you. But, like, in the folkloric perspective, it's not necessarily a human someone. See, this is so funny because literally just before we started this episode, I was talking about how for my entire childhood I had people tell me all the time that I looked just like Velma Dinkley from yeah. Scooby-Doo. Yeah, that's the same thing. It's, it's, the, it's same the same thing. It's so, literally the same thing. So going off of that, if you ever meet Velma Dinkley <laughs> in person, then one of you will surely die. Yeah. I mean, I should think so. Then one of you will surely die. There can only be one. So... To preempt the inevitable, uh, this isn't really a cryptid, at, I would like to say that while you're probably right, there is a page about doppelgangers on the cryptids wiki, so I'm going to use that. So blame them, not us. Yeah, I'm going to use that as my basis and go from there. And also, if you've been listening for long enough, you know that we dive into folklore as well and stuff that lives in kind of a nebulous world just because this podcast is not peer-reviewed. Also, by this time, if you don't fully believe that the cryptids wiki with a Z is the Encyclopedia Britannica of cryptozoology, Zoology, then you're clearly not our I don't know audience. how to help you. I don't know how to help you, What else actually? can we do to convince you? Are these hard facts not enough for you in this soft science? <laughs> hard facts, soft science. That's what we're all about here. We're like, um... We're like a Malomar. Hard chocolate on the outside is the hard facts, and the soft science is the marshmallow on the inside. There we go. I couldn't think of a food with a hard outside and a soft middle, even though that is so many foods. My very favorite thing about that joke is the fact that you adored the punchline before you even figured out what it was. Like, you were over here ready to lose your mind over how funny your joke was before you even knew what you were joking about. I got that from my mom. And I I want to have that level of confidence in anything that I say. Anyone who's ever had a conversation with Gina Peacock has seen her do this exact thing where she starts to tell a joke and then she laughs for about five minutes and then delivers a very anticlimactic punchline. So I got it from my mama. All right. So the cryptids wiki will be our little, like, look foot in the door into the doppelganger because this is the thing to make sure I could potentially excuse doing this on an episode. I googled Fair. doppelganger cryptid 
And the only page that came up with that result was this. Oh, hell yeah. Um, <laughs> so doppelganger on the cryptids wiki. A doppelganger is a cryptid that originated in Germany but has spread all throughout the world. The word doppelganger literally means double goer or like double walker. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's essentially, now this is a little bit of editorializing on their part, but according to this, it's essentially an evil twin. It's your double who, and as opposed to being like, people use it now as kind of slang for a person who looks a lot like you, but in the traditional sense, it is a double of you that is not human. It's something sort of, it's like a spirit or some sort of creature that may, wreaks havoc in your life or is a portent of death. Now, quick question. Yes. Is it doppelganger or is it doppelganger? Oh, it's got the little umlaut. It's doppelganger. I'm just curious. I've always heard doppelganger. That's how people say it. I it's wasn't the, curious if that was correct. It's got an umlaut over the A, so I'm assuming it's actually pronounced yeah, doppelganger. So. But I say doppelganger because that's how I've always heard it. Yeah, and totally. I'm an American, so I will bend languages to my own perception, apparently. <laughs> um, that's what we do here. No, in all seriousness, that's just... My brand would just be remiss if I didn't no. ask that information. No, I understand. Your linguistics brain has to ask. No, that I'm sure is the actual correct pronunciation. If you are German and you are listening to this, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I mainly am just referring to it as doppelganger because, one, I feel really pretentious when I try to pronounce it. Oh, this is the doppelganger. Yeah, I feel like those people who, like, order at restaurants, like, in an accent. Oh, um, gosh, like, yeah. could I get the medicart? Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> A medicato and a limoncello. Anyway, um, and also just because that is, I think, if you are in an English-speaking country, maybe this is just America, but I think you're used to hearing it said that way. So it just, my brain is just like there are two extremes on that spectrum, and you can mm. either be the medicato or you can be the. Can I have the ganache? Yeah, and I don't want to be that. <laughs> We're not going to be either of those. I don't want to be. Please the, promise yeah, me. Yeah, I don't want to be the. Can I get extra tortillas with my tostada? Oh God. Um, no, I don't want to be that person either. So anyway. Um, but it is supposed to be an omen of death. and <laughs> Okay, yeah. That sentence went some places. So it is I did to... forget where we started. Yeah. So the doppelganger, seeing your own doppelganger is, in most stories surrounding it, meant to be an omen of misfortune or death. It's not a lucky thing to see it. And there's some debate as to whether or not the doppelganger itself is causing the death or if it is a harbinger. Like, oh, okay, yeah. There is some variation in the stories. Like The same way there's a lot of variation in other things that might be omens, like banshees, like Mothman, like a lot of other things, there is debate about what's causing what, like correlation and causation. There right? have been many times I've seen myself and gone, boy, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll like this then. Um, under appearance on the cryptids wiki, oh, it no. says, look in a mirror. That's what a <laughs> doppelganger looks like. Ooh. Some people think it's a ghost or a spirit. Others think it's an actual creature of flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. Little is known about doppelgangers and zero is known about their original form as they immediately mimic the first person they see. Which is fun. Now, the one thing that distinguishes them from normal people, and this is fun because this pops up in a lot of, like, humanoid monsters Uh stories, is that they don't have a shadow and they don't have a reflection. Interesting. Yeah. They may have some amount of psychic abilities. There are different stories, and I'll go into this a little bit more, that suggest that they can, like, put thoughts in your heads, like intrusive thoughts or, like, give you bad advice, (laughs) things like that. Like, I say bad advice like like they're telling you to, like, get a perm. I mean, like, life-damaging advice. So, like, don't listen to them. Like intrusive thoughts or, like... There's two different uh, there's two different things. There's like one that says that they are telepathic in some extent and like can plant like thoughts in your head and there's another that says they can appear to you in like a mirror or in another situation and offer you advice that so is it's often like, malicious or you shouldn't take. So it's it will... like the scene in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 where Harry Osborn is 
talking to the Green Goblin. No, wait, I'm thinking about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 1, yeah. where Norman Osborn is talking to himself in the mirror. As the Green but Goblin. there is another scene in Spider-Man 2 or 3 where Harry Osborn is talking to the Green Goblin in the mirror. I remember nothing... I was getting them confused. I remember nothing of Spider-Man 3 because they did my boy Venom so, so wrong, but... I, you didn't love Topher Grace as Venom? Here's the thing. <laughs> I respect Topher Grace. I'm sure he's a very nice man. I am not a particular fan of his portrayal of Venom, but it's also not entirely his fault. I will say one thing for Spider-Man 3, and it's also inexcusable, which is that Spider-Man 3 is like genuinely a really phenomenal acting performance by one Mr. James Franco, and I cannot forgive the movie for that. I, you're correct. I need to read just verbatim from the sightings section of this crypto oh, please piece, do. because this part made me laugh out loud the first time I read it. It says, most people never see their doppelganger, but some do. When they do, they often die. Now, this is the part that made me laugh out loud. The doppelganger can either be nice and hang out, or it can be evil and ruin your life. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Two kinds of people, I guess. It can be nice and hang out, or it can be evil and ruin your life. An example that they give is saying, going into your job for you and saying that they quit. The next day, you won't be able to go to work. So, like a lot of <laughs> kind of evil spirit type characterizations, this thing rides a very wide range from just kind of like generally making mischief in your personal life to uh -huh. just straight up you're dead now. <laughs> And I just, I shouldn't laugh as much. It's Not awful. to bring up Troom Troom two episodes in a row. <laughs> Alex, this please. This feels like a Troom Troom episode. <laughs> well, actually, that's kind of how I th feel about pranks. Pranks, I think, go into one of two categories. They can either, like, be nice and hang out, or they yeah. can be evil and ruin your life. Yeah, genuinely. Are you putting Nicolas Cage in people's picture frames all over their house so that they subtly feel like they're losing their mind, which is a very good and hilarious prank? Or are you making a phone case out of taffy so when someone sees you on the phone, you just take a bite out of it? <laughs> I mean, that was also kind of fun. No, that's an but evil one wild. that ruins your life. Okay, so just to provide some context, because if we don't, we're just going to keep making jokes about this and people are going to not understand. So there is a channel on YouTube called Troom Troom. T-R-O-O-M, T-R-O-O-M. We're not trying to, like, they, they are not a sponsor in any way, shape, no. or form. I don't advocate. I would call troom, them an anti-sponsor. <laughs> an anti-sponsor. We stand against everything that they stand for. But and Addison and I will frequently watch their videos together <laughs> um, because they are insane. So what they are is, like, a DIY channel. And I should specify, it's, I think, based in Russia or the Ukraine. It's somewhere where they're using, like, potato chip bags with the Cyrillic alphabet on it. I think yeah, it's Russia. Yeah, but also their about section says that they are based out of the United States, and they are trying very hard to convince people they're based out of the United States, but it's just, like, a bit off. But all of their snack packaging is in the Cyrillic alphabet. It's so weird. But anyway, they do prank videos, quote-unquote, which I put in quotes because sometimes their pranks are things like make a giant Oreo. Which, and then eat it. One, not a prank. <laughs> or two, it'll be like make a phone case out of taffy and then confuse your friends by biting your phone. <laughs> or sometimes it'll be stuff like ruin your teacher's life by sabotaging her relationships. Put like, her phone inside a balloon and then put that balloon in another balloon full of water. Commit psychological sabotage on your friends by making them think they're being spied on by the CIA. Like, they're wild. <laughs> so anyway. Anyway, so I think that like that's what I'm going to be thinking of this entire time while we're talking about doppelgangers, is that I'm going to be thinking of oh, yeah. like the Troom Troom videos. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like, are we here to have a fun time and hang out, or are we here to ruin your life? Now, I do want to go ahead and specify that just because you see someone who looks like you doesn't mean you should freak out that it's your doppelganger, because while people use those phrases interchangeably now, doppelgangers specifically, they don't have a shadow, they don't have a reflection, they are not human. Whereas, 
I should specify, it does mention on this page and on other pages I looked at, it is worth noting that scholars have mentioned that due to genetics being only so complex, there are roughly 10 people who look exactly like you on the planet at any given time, given the current population. Mm -hmm. It's also stated that about 10% of people will meet one of their twins at some point in their life. So just because you meet someone who looks a lot like you or someone like sends you a picture of someone who looks like you and is like, is this you at the Gap? And you aren't at the Gap? (laughs) Don't be worried that like there's an evil spirit getting some genes while wearing your face. It's probably just one of those 10 people. Also, they didn't ask for that face. Leave them alone. Now, I'm not sure if doppelgangers would show up in photographs if they don't have reflections. I don't think that they would, but it doesn't specify. So I should say that just because you run into someone who looks like you or see someone who looks like you doesn't mean you have cause for fear. You should look for their shadow first and then go from there. If they're like Peter Panning it and their shadows run off to do other stuff, then be worried. So here's an interesting thing about reflections. Yeah. Well, one, I think that, like, probably modern cameras would be able to capture them, whereas, like, old-fashioned cameras wouldn't. Okay. I'm not positive, but I don't think that modern cameras have any sort of, like, reflective technology that they're using. Mm-hmm. But an interesting thing about reflections in the first place is, and this is something that I read a while back, and I'm pretty sure that it's true, but I would need to verify it again, um, is that the reason that the vampires not showing up in mirrors thing was so common for so long was because at the time that that idea came around, mm-hmm. mirrors were all backed with silver. And so it was actually the silver and not, like, the process of reflection that was working against the vampire. Right. Oh, so shoot. it's So it's not that, like, vampires don't show up in reflective surfaces. It's that they didn't show up in mirrors. And mirrors, because they were back to silver, like, that's why. So there is some theory that, like, in modern mirrors that don't have silver in them, a vampire would show up just fine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true of doppelgangers or not. I'm I have not no sure. idea. I do want to refer now to an Atlas Obscura article on the history of the doppelganger, which refers to the fact that the idea of doubles of people appears in a lot of different folklore and a lot of different stories. One of the first things it references is something we talked about in our fairies episode, which are changelings. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, changelings are referenced, and that is, of course, a little bit different. That's the idea of someone being replaced with something else, like invasion of the body snatchers or something, except for obviously they're fae. The idea of changelings appears in European folklore and in African folklore and I believe in parts of South America. That pops up all over the place. The idea that a person could be replaced by something non-human that looks just like them. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit different, whereas in a doppelganger, the two are coexisting. There's also a Norse Vardoger, which is not ominous at all. It's not like a bad portent. It's just like a person who looks just like you. Like, say, you're coming to a Halloween party at my house Uh and I go downstairs to like say hello to people and you're like in the corner eating some chips and I'm like oh hey Alex and then like I turn around and then you're not there anymore and then I hear a knock at the door and you're like oh hey here I am for your Halloween party that was a Vardo girl that was there before you got there they like appear at a place before Uh a person gets there giving the impression they've already arrived do they all like chips I don't. I just made up the chips. Oh, okay. The chips were my own personal flourish. That is, it's not ominous at all. Just it my, is a very good sitcom trope, though. It is. I'm just confused by what they even do. Now, there's not a lot more about them in this article. I just like the idea of this thing that's just kind of makes people think you're better at being on time, I guess. <laughs> just trying to help out, guys. Yeah, it's just like a friendly spirit of punctuality. I don't know. But... There's also, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, but English and Irish literature from the 18th and 19th centuries talks about something called the fetch, which is a double that, like the doppelganger, its appearance is an omen of impending death. I'm not going to make the joke, but I do need to acknowledge the joke. They were trying to make fetch happen. Okay, see, now you went and made it. 
somebody's got to say it now or we're going to get it in our mentions for the next three years. So the word doppelganger was first introduced in 1796 by German author Jean Paul in his novel Siebenkass. The plot features the protagonist exchanging identities with a friend who looks just like him. And then he invented two words to describe doubles, which was doppeltganger, which meant an uncanny lookalike, whereas doppelganger was used to describe a meal in which two courses were served simultaneously. (laughs) The distinction didn't last long following the book, and doppelganger assumed the default term for any sort of double. Okay, interesting. So that's some fun linguistics for you that as well. That is fun. I like that. Um, but the original form of the word did survive. The word was originally doppeltganger, which pretty much the same word with the T. And that was also used by a Prussian writer, E.T.A. Hoffman, who titled a story Die Doppeltganger in 1821. Uh, he wrote another story as well, which, oh my God, I he was Prussian. I don't know how to say it. The Elixir de Tuffel? It's a story about a monk who's haunted by a ghost who looks like him. Uh, it does stuff that gets him in trouble and people mistake them for each other. That's what it is. It's a doppelganger story. <laughs> I can't pronounce the title. But that is the origin of the term and how it sort of became doppelganger being the kind of normal one. And it's actually probably the origin of like the oft joked about soap opera trope of the evil twin. Yeah, I they would think so. embody a person's darker traits. They wreak havoc on their life by pretending to be the person that they look like. There is a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale called The Shadow from 1847 in which a man separates from his body, his shadow separates from his body and becomes his walking double, acting in the exact opposite way morally and behaviorally as him and eventually replacing him, which is dark. But it's also Hans Christian Andersen, so are we surprised when, like, his most popular stories are about, like, a mermaid dying and turning into sea foam and a little girl dying in the snow. God, that story. Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have even brought up the little match girl. No, it's okay. I mean, I think it is a really fascinating concept because I think that what it's pointing to is, I mean, there are a couple things. So, like, one, the idea that if somebody looked just like you, the fact that they could wreak havoc on your life by doing all these things without having to take accountability for them or suffer the consequences of them. But I think that that also points to something deeper, which is our own sort of id and the idea Mm -hmm. of, like, all the things that we wish we could do Mm -hmm. without having to take accountability for them. And And so when we're looking at, like, the way that some stranger would come into our life and, like, use our established pattern of living to create all this trouble, what we're really looking at and sort of horrified by is the idea of all the things that we could do or might be capable yes. of. And and it's funny how easily that idea links up with something that doesn't involve the separation of the bodies, but the duality of personality like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how easily that kind of lines up and the idea that humanity can be like split into this these two different polarized people. There's actually warning for spoilers from a TV episode from 2000, but there's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in season five that I think is a really interesting twist on the doppelganger idea in which after a fight with a demon of unknown origin, Xander wakes up in the middle of nowhere, goes back to his house, his job, and sees someone who looks just like him doing his job, talking to his girlfriend, living his life, and doing it a lot better than he does. And he is terrified that this demon that he fought with before has taken on his shape and is trying mm-hmm. to take over his life. Now, the actual reveal of the episode is that, and, and throughout this all, he seems to be just, like, more and more incompetent and unable to get people on his side and get his life back. And essentially, the reveal is that when he was battling with this demon, this, like, magic sword of sorts split him into two people. 
that were literally two of his mm-hmm. different aspects and like all of his good traits went into one and all of his bad traits went into the other and they literally just stick them back together at the end but I just I, anyway I just like that one a lot because it was like it's an evil double story no these are just the same guys stick them back together yeah so I would um, be remiss I think if we didn't acknowledge this um, however I do want to be very careful about the way that we address and handle it and historically I mean we've established before there's a precedent for this. There are a lot of times in history when something folkloric or supernatural in origin is really just a gross misunderstanding of a neuroatypical condition or like an atypical physiological development or what have you. And And I actually do have a little bit about that in a bit, but I want to hear your thoughts first. Yeah, no, so I was just going to talk a little bit about dissociative identity disorder Mm -hmm. and the way that, like, that manifests itself. Now, I don't have dissociative identity disorder. I want to be very clear about that. I'm not trying to speak for those who do. And I know that dissociative identity disorder is something that even today is really unfairly demonized a lot and something that we're still, like, making horror movies about and Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, which is gross. The thing about dissociative identity disorder is that it's not people who have it who are scary, right? But for people who do have it, it's my understanding that there are a lot of aspects of having that that are genuinely terrifying sometimes because you Mm -hmm. might have to live with this fear that someone who looks like you, who shares your life and your body and your connections and resources might, without your knowledge or your understanding or your consent, do things to upset that balance. Right. And I used to have a very close friend, and nothing happened, we just haven't talked in a while, um, who has pretty serious dissociative identity disorder. And I actually had pretty close relationships with several of his alters as well. And it was the wildest thing to have, you know, this one phone number in your cell phone, but you might have text conversations with like three different people and just not knowing who you'd be talking to at a given time. But I know that's something that he grappled with a lot. And this was a very real concern for him because one of his alters was fairly malicious is maybe too strong a word, although I don't think so. I just, again, don't want to speak for somebody else's experience, but had pretty frequent experiences where this altar of his would willfully go out and just seemingly for the fun of it, sabotage personal relationships or do things like destroy homework that he'd done or or start conversations or start fights with people over text message because they wouldn't have any way of knowing if that was him or if that was the alter that he had, if those people even knew that he had dissociative identity disorder, right. which, you know, there are a lot of stigmas around, so sometimes people don't. But it's really, really fascinating to me, this idea that I don't want to sound like overly clinical. I'm not saying like, oh, well, this is such an interesting case study. Like, no, but I think that even our understanding now is so limited and so stigmatized Mm -hmm. that I can't even imagine having that situation like in, you know, 1400s Germany. Yeah. And it does actually stand to reason that someone, the the, the thing that someone would probably pretty naturally assume if someone is told like a few days after something happens, like you came into my pub and started a fight Uh with somebody and they have no memory of it, the assumption would be there must be someone else who looks like me who did that. Yeah, or if you see somebody who looks just like your friend Hans, but they're acting like the complete antithesis of everything that Hans stands for, like, that would be wild, right? You would assume that there must be someone who looks like Hans who is making trouble in the village. Mm -hmm. And I'm really showing myself that I don't know anything about 1400s Germany. I'm like, making trouble, making mischief (laughs) in the village on the eve of the festival. Stealing chickens. Stealing chickens from... Gregor, um, <laughs> I don't, but sorry, I don't know much about a uh, 1400s Germany, but Hilda's a witch. Throw her in the oven, like I. Wow. Hansel and Gretel's my preference right now. Oh, gotcha. old timey Germany. That's all I have. I don't know. Everyone in Germany uh, had candy houses, yeah. In, yeah, like, the 1400s, y'all. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, all anyway. of that just to say that, like, I think that's a fascinating possibility, and I think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that possibility. Mm-hmm. This is something that we still don't have a great understanding of or a great treatment of. By treatment, I don't mean medical. I mean treatment as in, like, the way that we treat it in conversations and in society and in media. Like, we don't do a great job handling dissociative identity disorder. Not at all. We really don't. And we don't do a great job handling the people in our lives that have dissociative identity disorder. And it's a real problem. And so, like, maybe we can take a lesson from the people of Doppelganger Germany as how not to handle this. Yeah, actually. And I would like to take this opportunity, if I may, to talk about some historical sightings and encounters yeah. just to kind of interject this in. And I have some other kind of backgroundy stuff to talk about, but I just, they're in the same Atlas Obscura piece. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about. Um, there is an old story. And of course, a lot of these stories of this nature are very, very old and not in any way verifiable or verified. So some of these are you to be taken with Perhaps even a, a fistful of salt, but here we are. There is Does a, salt do anything against doppelgangers? I don't think so. Okay. Maybe. We'll just have it on hand anyway. Salt's like a universal, like, evil spirit deflector. I yeah. feel like having it on hand is not a bad idea. And also, if you don't use it for that, like, a little bit of salt can help pretty much any dish taste a little bit better. So, like... It's true. You know, just keep it on hand. I like to talk a little bit about, uh, historically, these appearing. First of all, before I talk about real sightings, Edgar Allan Poe who, you know, famously wrote a lot of what amounts <laughs> a to A very modern. trustworthy source. Well, this was not necessarily intended to be a true thing. It's more just I was thinking about it appearing again as a trope. He did write a story about a young boy meeting his double at an English boarding school. It's called William Wilson. And it's a boy who meets his doppelganger who essentially systematically ruins his life. But going away from that and on to sort of a more real quote-unquote version there is a rumor that Catherine the great one of her servants found her sitting on her throne while she was sleeping in her bedroom whoa whoa and she ordered the imposter to be shot and then died several weeks later wait so i'm sorry who ordered the imposter to Catherine be shot the great her so, servant saw her on the throne and then uh-huh. was like, I think I saw her in her room and then went to her room and was like, Milady, there's a person uh-huh. on the throne who looks like you. And she was like, what? They're not supposed to be there. You should shoot them. And then they did. Okay. And then she died a few weeks later. Catherine died or yes. the servant? Okay. No, sorry, okay. not the servant. Sorry, no, there no, were just Catherine. some pronoun. Yeah. Sorry, some pronoun mix-em-ups. No, Catherine died. Okay. In his autobiography, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe describes a benign but prescient encounter with his double on horseback. The sighting, occurring in the early 1770s on his way to Drusenheim, was of his spectral self in unfamiliar attire, passing without a word. Years later, Goethe once again found himself traveling that road, this time, incidentally, wearing the gray coat of his premonition. And that one's less doppelganger and more almost like timelines meeting or something. That's where my brain would go with that, almost like... Time is. We used to have this running thing when I was a kid, and I can't explain to you how this got started. I just know that we believed it to be true, like in Uh the in the sort of you know cognitive dissonance way of like we knew that it wasn't, but also like what if it was? Um, Where anytime we saw a car that had the same make and model of the car we were in on the road, we weren't allowed to look in the windows because if we saw ourselves, we would collapse the timeline. Oh shoot. The last one comes, and this is a secondhand one, but Mary Shelley talked about Percy before his death having visions of himself meeting with him, speaking with him, including one where he described seeing the figure of himself, meeting him as he walked on the terrace and saying to him, how long do you mean to be content? 
Oh. Wild, right? Oh, God. Yeah. Doppelganger encounters continued in the U.S., most of them involving seeing it and then death happening shortly mm-hmm. after. Soon after his election in 1860, Abraham Lincoln saw his reflection doubled in the mirror. Oh. Which he tried to show his wife, but she did not see when she entered the room. She didn't see it. She thought that the vision was a sign that he would serve two terms. Unfortunately, what actually happened was he died. Oh, uh, sorry, so, Mary. Sorry, Mary Todd Lincoln. But essentially, repeat meetings, according to Linda Derry, who's the site director at the Old Cahaba Ghost Store in Alabama. She's a curator of folklore originating from that region. And she says about doppelgangers that repeat meetings, specifically three meetings, always mean that the end is near. Death is on its way. Yikes. If someone else saw your doppelganger, it could mean that you're very ill. And that's like a common thing that pops up in like ghost stuff as well. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to equate the two because there is a pretty common in a lot of ghost stories, particularly when people talk about their relatives passing away. Yeah. They talk about seeing them appear shortly before they pass away, like miles away. And so that I don't know if I would equate to doppelganger stories, but it does appear when we're talking about it, so I didn't want to... I don't think that the two are necessarily unrelated. No, absolutely. I mean, especially if doppelgangers are, like, a spiritual more than physical, mm-hmm. you know, sort of oh, absolutely. manifestation. Now, there are some psychological explanations, and I'll go a little bit more into this in just a bit, but there is actually a neurological condition called hetoscopy, H-E-A-U-T-O-S-C-O-P-Y, in which one hallucinates their own image at a distance. Interesting. Which can explain a lot of cases in which the only person who sees the double is the person that it is a double Right, of. yeah. Obviously, sightings of multiple witnesses make it a little bit more complicated and invite other explanations. But if you're just the only one seeing your double, that is a neurological condition. That is something that can happen. And that brings me, let me just go to my stuff here. That's okay. If this is a good in-between point, actually, yes, I would go. love to take a minute to tell you that this episode is brought to you again by the Lone Star Victims Advocacy Project. The Lone Star Victims Advocacy Project's mission is to educate, advocate for, and provide free legal services to empower immigrant victims of abuse in rural Texas. The LSVAP believes that no one should ever have to live with violence and that all victims of abuse deserve dignity, compassion, and help. Their clients are incredibly isolated by language, geography, culture, and their abusive situations. They are desperate for help that is increasingly hard for them to find. The Lone Star Victims Advocacy Project will provide free bilingual services to folks across the state of Texas without ever requiring their clients to come to them. They make it as easy as possible for their clients to get the help that they need. And in turn, the Lone Star Victims Advocacy Project will study each case to see what other resources in their community might have helped them and their families to leave their abusers sooner. They use each case as a foot into the door of the rural communities they serve and advocate to make those services available so that no one feels they have to live with abuse. But they do need help raising the funds to make that possible. 80% of the Lone Star Victim Advocacy Project's budget goes directly into working with clients and performing advocacy on the ground. By giving, you'll make an immediate impact on both lives and policies in rural Texas. Your donation will help them change Texas, one family and one community at a time. You can learn more about the Lone Star Victims Advocacy Project and their mission at lsvap.org. That'll take you directly to their website. And from there, you can find out more about their mission. You can find out how you can get involved. You can find out how you can donate. And I really just think it's an excellent cause and a super, super timely one. I think that we need to look for more causes nowadays that not only provide resources, but are looking for ways to improve the infrastructure that's actually tackling these things before they happen. And the Lone Star Victims Advocacy Project is a great cause for that reason. Um, Addison and I have, again, donated the ad revenue for this episode directly to the LSVAP. So we're not making any money from this. We're just giving it right back to the cause. And if you'd like to do the same, then you can just go to their website and you can find out how to help. It's a really important cause, and uh, I want to thank 
them for reaching out to us, and I want to thank you for giving them your support if you are able to. And even if, again, you don't have financial support, we know everybody's in, you know, these are difficult times for a lot of people, ourselves included. And if the only thing that you can do is share that website or tell your friends and family about it or tell people on Twitter about it or retweet a link or just let people know that it's out there, let people that you know in the area maybe that can benefit from it, mm-hmm. um, just get the word out. You know, that's that's something. Yeah. I would like to hop back into this discussion of doppelgangers and talk a little bit more about scientific mental health explanations for seeing one's double. Yeah. So there is a a Broadly Vice article called When You're Most Likely to See Your Doppelganger or about that. And essentially it's, it's discussing, and there are some actual sightings in this one as well, but it discusses that it might not be a portent of doom, but it could be a clue about something to do with your health. And they discussed uh, with Professor Christopher French, who is an anomalistic psychologist. He mentions hotoscopy again, which can be triggered by schizophrenia. It can be triggered by brain tumors. And it can also be it's also common in people with epilepsy before a seizure. That would explain why there's like a high morbidity rate. Yeah. In fact, that's the most interesting thing is particularly brain tumors and epilepsy, especially from times that when people did not know how to treat epilepsy, it being a sign of impending death is less it on a metaphysical level or a demonic level or any of that and more just your brain produces that image when it is suffering from a thing that might be deadly, which is very interesting to me. And there's a specific example that he cites from 1994, where a 21-year-old Swiss man saw his double lying in his bed after a night drinking. He was being treated for seizures but had stopped taking his medication. Despite his shouts and attempts to wake it, the doppelganger refused to move. Then the two switched places. The man lying in bed was suddenly unable to move, watching his double shouting at him. The cycle repeated itself several times. The experience drove the man to jump from a fourth-floor window in an attempt to find a match between body and self. While undergoing treatment for his injuries in the hospital, he was found to have a tumor on his left temporal lobe. Temporal epilepsy is the most frequent form of the condition. So once the tumor was removed, the hallucinations of his double stopped. It's explained as being the brain feeling like a disconnect between itself and the body, and it's trying to make that match happen. And so it creates this kind of out-of-body experience. The idea of, I'm so sorry, like, I'm so no, sorry. No, it's okay. The idea of, like, flipping back and forth between those perspectives, like... Sorry, trigger warning. I think I would also jump from a fourth floor window. No, I understand. That is horrifying. That's like actually, I think, one of the most genuinely terrifying things I can think of. I'm very sorry. I didn't mean to. to No, no, it's okay. I didn't know that like that specific angle is where it was going to go. Um, No, I understand. I'm so sorry. But that is essentially what it is. And it's the same kind of thing that people attribute to a lot of the time, like out of body experiences. It's a similar phenomenon if we're looking at the sort of scientific explanation in terms of why the brain does that. Yeah, totally. It can also be an element of, it mentions sleep paralysis, uh, anything that causes hallucinations. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to put a little trigger warning for unreality <laughs> in the description of this episode. I need to be better about noticing when that's a thing that might come up. Yeah, so. no, I mean, I think that, like, when you're talking about seeing visions of yourself in general, yeah. like, that's that's sort of an implied unreality situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I figured we'd, yeah. we'd end up going somewhere there, just, like, that specific circumstance mm-hmm. is wild. And they also mentioned something else in this article further up. They mentioned another example that sort of delves into this, which was a woman who was having uh, brain surgery done. And a lot of time for brain surgery, they don't put you under because you don't feel anything. Like your brain doesn't have, you can't feel sensation when things touch your brain. And they noticed when a portion of her brain was interacted with, she, while knowing this was like definitely not real, like talked about feeling a person behind her 
like an a per like oh a, my gosh. like feeling like a person was behind her and like knowing that it wasn't real but being like there's definitely someone behind me and like pressure on your brain and like interactions with your brain can like set off like warning signs and systems that are like exist to keep you safe but kind of misalign a little bit or misfire a little bit and I just thought that was interesting that's as well. wild and so here's yeah. the thing <laughs> I'm so sorry no it's okay here's the thing um I know that we always operate from the standpoint of like cryptids are real doppelgangers are super super real um definitely however if you see one please go to a neurologist yeah, please go to the doctor please go to like, the doctor right away unless you have verified that it is not a doppelganger as it is in fact you are one of the 10 percent of people that will see one of your genetic twins once in your lifetime if you've verified that they are another human yeah, being. Yeah, no, have a friend go talk to them. Yeah. Um, if your friend can see them. Mm-hmm. If your friend cannot see them, go to the neurologist immediately. If your friend can see them, have them have a conversation with them. Establish that you're two different people. If you're the same person, go to the neurologist immediately. <laughs> or if your friend can see them and talk to them and you are the same person, then that's just a straight up doppelganger. If you don't go to the neurologist... We're going to have to have you sign a waiver saying that you do not hold the Cryptid Keeper podcast responsible yes. for telling you that doppelgangers are real. Yes. Sorry, the story... You can find a waiver on our SoundCloud. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> the story about the woman uh, having the brain surgery done was from a Nature.com article, and I am loading the title right now because I want to cite that, one called Brain Electrodes Conjure Up Ghostly Visions. That was where that story was from. Cool. But, yes. And I know, it gets a little bit uncomfortable to think about and to talk about because brains do weird stuff. But now I want to go to a list verse piece, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the fetch. But first, I'm going to make fetch happen, but first I'm going to... Uh, <laughs> twice in one episode. You know what? You just got to milk this milk this cash cow. It's not a cash cow. It's not... It's a... I don't know what this cow has, but it's not cash. It's not milk. I don't know. It's nothing, nothing good. good. Rude. <laughs> On the doppelganger episode, you're going to do that to me? You're going to do that to me on this episode. So I'd like to hop over to listverse.com under the category of weird stuff. We've got 10 disturbing tales of doppelgangers by Polly Pasuo. Oh, boy. I'm ready. <laughs> now, first, there's like a little the history of the doppelganger, German folklore, and then potential explanations like mm-hmm. witches in the brain, brain tumors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, the first one, or a couple of these are stories that I've already talked about, the Catherine the Great and the uh, Goethe and Percy uh-huh. Shelley. But those are the first three on the list. But number seven is about Sir Frederick Carnarash, a British parliament member in 1906, who was spotted by Sir Gilbert Parker, a fellow parliament member, sitting on a bench when this guy, Sir Gilbert, was attending a debate. Now, this really surprised Sir Gilbert because Sir Frederick was severely ill with the flu. Still, he greeted him and he said, I hope you're feeling better. And he didn't react. He just sat there looking very serious, didn't move. Now, when he glanced again, the seat was completely empty. So he looked for him in the lobby only to find that no one had seen him. He discussed the event with fellow parliamentarians and it turned out they had also seen him. And then the real Carnrash, who had been sick in bed all along, found out about the incident, and he was not surprised. He said he had really wanted to take part in the debate, so to him, it made sense that his spirit had sneaked a peek. (laughs) He astral projected to work? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Uh, damn, and I thought I had issues. I know. His family, however, was afraid that the doppelganger was a bad sign. I love this. I love this. I love this. In a small way, they were right. For quite some time, Karn Rash was annoyed by fellow parliament members who kept poking him with their fingers to make sure he was flesh and blood. In the end, he had to write a massively sarcastic letter to a local newspaper, apologizing that he didn't have the good sense to die at the time of the doppelganger sighting and promising to behave better next time. Oh, my God. This guy is, like, 
moods AF. I love this guy. I'm obsessed. <laughs> He's my new historical icon. Yeah, seriously. Now, the next one, Queen Elizabeth I claimed she had seen her own doppelganger. She claimed to have seen herself lying on her bed. Now, that one is very similar to the story I told you about the guy with the brain tumor. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting because she did die soon after that. I'm not saying she had a brain tumor. I'm just saying it's just interesting that her symptoms mimic the story I recounted. And then she died fairly soon after. Now, this is a little bit more of a astral projection story, but there is some crossover, as you've already noticed. So this is Maria de Jesus de Agreda, and this is in the 17th century. She was a Spanish nun. And she claimed to have spread the word of Christianity by bilocating across the ocean to oh. the American like colonies. Okay. She this was like during the Spanish Inquisition. They initially were suspicious of her. They acquitted her of witchcraft charges, probably because she claimed to be spreading the word of Catholicism. <laughs> but her power was declared to be of divine origin. She became an international celebrity, the leader of her convent, and the author of many books on how she acquired her powers. So Gosh. she claimed she was. <laughs> an astral projecting missionary. So that's just an interesting little story for that you. That is wild. I already told you about Abraham Lincoln's doppelganger uh-huh. in the mirror. Then another one. This is George Tryon. He was Vice Admiral George Tryon in 1893. He was the commander of two columns of ships off the coast of Syria. And essentially, he gave a command for the columns of ships to turn toward each other. And this turned out to be an amateur mistake as the ships promptly rammed into each other. And one of them, the one he happened to be in, sank like a stone. He, like, died in that ship. Now, at the exact same time, his wife was hosting a lavish party for their friends in their London home. Suddenly, to the guest's surprise, Tryon appeared at the party. Oh, whoa. Silently, he walked down a staircase, solemnly proceeded through the drawing room, and opened the door as if to leave before he suddenly disappeared. He was dressed in full uniform as if he was commanding a drill. That is wild. Uh, French writer Guy de Massapin. Maupassant is known for what is perhaps the most intimate doppelganger experience on record. It's not like in a weird way. Yeah. He's said to have regularly interacted with his doppelganger. His twin not only talked to him, but actually sat down and started dictating a short story to him. See, yes. I would not have taken that weird at all if you hadn't said it wasn't weird or anything. I thought you were giving me a funny look. I wasn't sure. <laughs> no, 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 no. I thought I didn't want anyone to think this was headed in like a weird erotica direction. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yes, he claimed that one of his last stories was ghostwritten literally by uh, his own ghost. Uh, I can't take credit for that. This list first article made the joke. But it gets even better. The story allegedly dictated to him by the doppelganger was The Horla, which is an unnerving tale of a man whose sanity is consumed by an evil spirit that uses him as a host. Oh, my God. As if echoing the story, his health started deteriorating soon after finishing it. In another version of the events, the doppelganger did not dictate the book as it disappeared when the terrified de Maupassant called his servant. However, the apparition returned a few months later. It entered the writer's room, looking at him with a sad expression. Then it sat down and buried its face in its hands, as if in despair. Convinced that the doppelganger brought news of disaster, the horrified de Maupassant's life went downhill from there. He died a year later. So, the last one is Emelie Saguet. Her story is also talked about in the Vice article where I got the information from the anomalistic psychologist. Okay, cool. So, she was a French schoolteacher. And this is one of my favorites because it's one of the most difficult to explain. A lot of French doppelganger stories. Yeah, right? She worked in a girls, an all-girls school. She was a school teacher. And she was a very good teacher, but for some reason kept moving from one job to another. In 16 years, she had changed positions 19 times. Oh, my gosh. 
1845, the school found out why. She was the center of some very strange doppelganger activity. Her spectral twin was first seen during a class as 13 students witnessed the doppelganger standing by her side and mimicking her movements. Oh my gosh. So they, this is witness of, of 13 students, 13 Whoa. witnesses, none of which were her. Um, next, it stood behind her as she ate pantomiming her movements she was completely oblivious to it she never saw it other people did she did become strangely groggy during the times the doppelganger manifested and the wraith was often seen doing things she later said she'd been thinking about at the moment suggesting that she may have had some sort of control over it so soon the doppelganger ventured beyond standing right next to her or right behind her it appeared to a classroom full of students sitting in the chair while sagay was outside working in the garden Oh, my gosh. The people who dared to approach it found that they could pass through it, yet it had a texture that reminded them of thick fabric. Oh, whoa. Time went by, and the apparition became a permanent fixture of the school's life, freaking out people on a regular basis. The girl's parents were concerned and started removing people from the school. Although Sagay was a model employee on all non-paranormal accounts, the headmistress (laughs) had no option but to fire her and her ghostly double. That is wild. Isn't that one wild? That's one of my favorites. And it's mentioned in multiple pieces about doppelgangers because it's one of the only historical or one of the only stories that you hear that isn't just one person seeing it. That isn't like one person sees the double and then sees the person. This is like she's right outside and there's someone in the classroom who looks just like her. That almost makes me think that like this woman was sort of subconsciously manifesting a tulpa or something. Yeah, or like astral projecting without knowing it. Yeah, but she just like clearly was somebody who like a very magical individual, somebody who has like, a, a, I guess, a natural predisposition for this kind of ability and was just like, had so much latent yeah, like ability that she was just subconsciously doing it. That's insane. Like if you're someone who does believe in astral projection and out-of-body experiences, like that is, that seems like That's one of the clearest. something that people take years to like hone intentionally. Yeah. The fact that this woman could subconsciously do it without knowing she was doing it for like Hours at a time is insane. It's wild. It's so unbelievable. Um, so clearly what I'm saying is that it was just a doppelganger. So yeah, like, I mean, there's probably. no other explanation. Although it would be a nice indication that seeing a doppelganger doesn't always mean you're going to die. It might just mean you're going to get fired. <laughs> Which is a bummer, but... Yeah. Um, and there are way more pieces about doppelgangers, by the way, if you would like to, on your own time, read some more about them. There is a little, like, bustle uh, article that's a nice little primer that's five creepy facts about doppelgangers because they're more common than you'd think. Oh. Which is a fun one. Doppelgangers. In my house. They're more common than, than you, you might think. think. Um, oh, but oh, they're, which, and it, and it talks about it from a, an actual serious scientific perspective. Like, I talked about the probability of meeting a lookalike and things like that and also the folklore. And that's a nice little, like, general Cool. thing if you want to read that on your own time and they are the origin of the evil twin it talks about that in that as well but before we wrap up i'd like to hop over to supernaturalcreatures.org and talk about and i know i've made the mean girls joke twice i won't make it anymore but i want to talk about the fetch okay so in english folklore there is a term for a ghostly double of a living person and that is a fetch it's very similar to the doppelganger in that it is an omen of your death as opposed to doppelganger stuff which is a little bit more nebulous there's mm-hmm. a little bit more variety. It's pretty much ironclad in the folklore surrounding the fetch. Like, if you see this, you're in a bad way. Like, that's going to be it. Now, however, that's only in English folklore. In Irish folklore, it's only a death omen if you see it at night. Okay, interesting. If you see it in the morning in Irish folklore, it means you're going to live for a long time. Oh, whoa. So, two sides of the coin, I guess. But it has a little bit more, like, description of the same kind of stories we talked about, like uh, Queen Elizabeth, like the classic 
stories people talk about. Also, the Wikipedia page for the fetch is where I'm going to go now. Your teachers lied to you. You can use Wikipedia as a source if you want to. Straight up, Wikipedia has more stringent, like, peer review standards than a lot of publishing sites mm-hmm. out there nowadays. Seriously. I've published stuff on Wikipedia before. Like, you have to be rigorous with your oh, you facts really do. or, like, it will get taken down within a day. No, you really, really do. I also, wanna... hot research tip for you kids. Uh-huh. If your teachers say that you cannot use Wikipedia, still go to Wikipedia because what you can do instead is you can go down to their, like, works cited. Um, if you go to the references on Wikipedia, it's pretty much like a crash course in other sources for you to look at. So mm-hmm. if you're ever trying to write, like, an academic paper, um, whether you're in high school or college and you need sources and you have no idea where to start, um, and, like, Google Scholar's doing you wrong, you can't remember your JSTOR password, <laughs> like, go to Wikipedia yeah. and then just, like, scroll down to the bottom and check out all the sources that are listed on the Wikipedia page because yeah. it's usually a good jumping off point. So uh, I wanted to talk really quickly about its origins in literature. So it's... Contemporary prominence is in national superstitions, and it mainly appears in Irish literature. Mm -hmm. It appears in Irish literature starting in the 19th century. The Fetch superstition is the topic of John and Michael Bannum's gothic story, The Fetches, from their 1825 work, Tales of the O'Hara Family. Patrick Kennedy's 1866 folklore collection, Legendary Fiction of the Irish Celts, includes a brief account of The Doctor's Fetch, in which a fetch's appearance signals death for the doctor in the Mm -hmm. title of the story. And then there's a recent one, which is interesting. We hop from the 1800s to 2010. Patrick McCabe's novel, The Stray Sod Country, The Fetch, is the malevolent narrator of the book, wherein it temporarily inhabits the bodies of residents of a small Irish town, causing them to commit harm to themselves and others. Oh, that's wild. Sounds like a really interesting book, actually. Yeah, for sure. I kind of want to read it. But anyway, that is the overlap. All across the world, we have this idea, particularly all across Europe, the idea of a ghostly double appearing to you as a harbinger of doom or death or misfortune. So if we want to talk about survival tips for the doppelganger, there are a lot of different interpretations in terms of how it's going to affect you. But if we look at worst case scenario, if I, I think personally worst case scenario for the doppelganger is one of two things, brain tumor or... It is a straight-up demonic, spiritual, mythical entity that means you great harm. So if it's one of those two options, going off both of those, let's, like, mush them together and say, if you see one, like we said, go to the neurologist. Yeah. Please. Go to the doctor. Make sure everything's all right in your your noggin. And then if everything's all right in your noggin, then I would consider... Then just stay in the hospital. Stay in the hospital. Because if something starts to go horribly wrong, that's where you want to be. And if... You start having, like, dark thoughts and stuff. Like, consider those are probably your doppelganger. It's funny. Actually, I'm laughing just because I uh, have OCD, so I deal with intrusive thoughts a lot. And something a therapist of mine told me to do a long time ago that I still do uh, when I have intrusive thoughts is to treat them like I am, like, driving my car and I have, like, an obnoxious friend in the backseat who just keeps yelling shit. Like, just keeps yelling annoying stuff at me and just, like get into the reflex of being like shut up Tyler like I don't good like no one cares like and I feel like you could think of your doppelganger that way like if your doppelganger is telling you bad stuff just tell it to shut its mouth and if it appears to you in your mirror and says it has some great advice for you about how to win on the stock market (laughs) or improve your love life I'd say you say no thank you and maybe get rid of that mirror Um, that's pretty much my advice to you on that but in all seriousness that uh that trick that I use for my intrusive thoughts has been very helpful for me. It's obviously supposed to be used in correlation with a lot of other therapy and stuff, but it's like a nice kind of way to retrain your impulses and like your brain. And that's always been helpful for me. But anyway, doppelgangers, doctor, stay in the hospital. Don't take advice from talking you in the mirror. (laughs) And that's about it. What do you think about the doppelganger? Final thoughts? 
Uh, I'm intrigued that I had never heard of the fetch before, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Which is, like, interesting to me. I mean, obviously, I don't claim to be an expert on, like, Irish folklore, but I do a lot of reading in that area, and it's just interesting because it did... I, I knew nothing about it, so I'm less of an expert than I thought I was, and it's a little bit of humble pie for me. Time to yeah. go back to the drawing board, which I like. Always a, a good time when I have an excuse to go do more reading on something, so I'm very excited about that. Yeah, no, cool stuff. I think the doppelganger is really fascinating. I'm always intrigued by cryptids, which give us sort of an insight into historical interpretations and like ways of coping with things that we are only just now starting to understand. And so that's always going to be like a cool topic for me, things that I enjoy thinking about. I think that it's really cool to look at like the ways in which humanity will continually like make tangible the things that like frighten us. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, Of course, doppelgangers are real, obviously, but I'm just saying that like from a psychological standpoint. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming along with me on that journey. I used to be very, very, very scared that I would see my doppelganger and I would die. That was a weird thing. Speaking of intrusive thoughts, that was one for me for a very long time of my childhood. This was a good way to sort of dive in and face my fears a little bit. Though I'm not sure how good it was for my hypochondria for me to read all that stuff about brain tumors, but we're going to be okay. So do you have any announcements? I do. I would like to extend a huge word welcome to the newest member of the Cryptid Keeper team. Yes! Um, So as you guys know, we've talked about before, um, Addison is moving across the country actually next weekend. So this Ah! is probably the next to last episode that we'll record together maybe the last one no i think we might want to try to do one more before i move just so we're a little bit ahead of we'll try to get one more in yeah we'll see So this is probably the next to last episode we'll record together in person in the suffering booth at least until addison comes back for you know a vacation or holidays and and stuff we can probably get together then but Yeah. yeah so anyway on that note um we decided that we wanted to bring on like an audio production engineer what's team the official member. title we went for team member audio editor didn't audio say? audio editor audio engineer audio master <laughs> i don't know the um, audio wizard but anyway so just to handle that aspect of things so that all we have to worry about is finding time to get together every week so from now on actually as of the last episode of the rougarou um all of the just super clean post-production work that you hear is being done by val patrone so yeah it is thank you val we love val val's val is uh, fantastic an excellent person as well as uh, very talented as you've heard production expert why am I having such a hard time finding the words to describe this know. position? I'm just calling them a sound wizard. A sound wizard. Oh, I like that a lot. They take our words and turn them alchemy-like into podcasting. We have, can we? We need to stop doing this. We can say that. That's totally, totally super legal. Anyway, so uh, if you have the time, shout out Val on Twitter. Welcome them to the fam. Or just say hey in whatever way befits you most. Um, they'll probably be tagged in the latest update post, mm-hmm. so you can find them there. Give me just a second, because I, I have, I've been trying for the last few minutes. I finally got it to let me into our Patreon account because I have some new donors to thank, and oh, I, yeah. I needed to get. I had to like go into my email and answer like a verification email. It and, doesn't like, believe that you're real. It didn't believe me that I'm like allowed. But according to my benefits tracker, if you are a person of the $20 or over tier and have not received your on-air thank you, please let me know because I'm not sure I trust the benefits tracker to be accurate. But anyway, I would like to thank Philip Brooks, Tyler Hamill, and Eleanor Schway. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Please let me know if that was wrong and I'll do a retraction on the next episode. So thank you all very much for your support. And thank you everyone who supports us in any way that you can for your support. It is so incredibly appreciated. 
Yeah, and we're always looking for new ways to provide patron content for you guys. So if you have things that you'd like to see, if there's like specific content that you see on other podcasts that you support um, and you think that would be a great addition to mm-hmm. our bonus content, let us know. You can always reach us on Twitter at CryptKeepPod, C-R-Y-P-T-K-E-E-P-P-O-D. You can also reach us on Facebook by messaging The Cryptid Keeper mm-hmm. or by tagging us in The Cryptid Keeper Appreciation Group. Or you can shoot us an email. Our email address is the same as our Twitter. It is CryptKeepPod at gmail.com. So again, C-R-Y-P-T-K-E-E-P-P-O-D. So as always, our music is by Andrew Giada. Our editing is by Val Patron. And as I say every week, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. <laughs>